You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm El Newbold. And I'm Chip Scambus. A day after the Florida Supreme Court decided to uphold a 2011 law requiring teachers, state and county work county and some municipal workers to contribute 3% of their paychecks toward the state's pension plan, Alachua County education employees are reacting. The decision keeps in place a state policy requiring state employees to contribute 3% of their paychecks toward the pension plan. Other states have similar requirements, but employees in those states are also usually paid more. Florida has some of the lowest teacher salaries in the country, and Alachua County Education Association President Karen McCann says this payroll cut is a disadvantage for the entire community. It also impacts our community because in Alachua County alone, over $3 million has been taken out of state workers' paychecks that would be money that would be spent where goods and services, you know, in the community. It, it has an economic disadvantage for the community when you have a payroll cut. The biggest problem with this is that it's really not a shared responsibility among everybody in Florida. It's not a shared sacrifice. Even though many teachers will see this decrease to their salaries, UF spokesperson Janine Sykes says the university will help many of its employees with the 3% decrease on their paychecks. This affirms the position the University of Florida held all along. You know, nothing changes. State employees continue to contribute 3% of their pay toward their pension. Certainly uh, good to applaud President Matchin's foresight to provide the 3% raises to faculty and staff to offset that. McCann says the state budget is being balanced at the expense of state workers. And we have been singled out, so therefore donating 3% less into the retirement fund, they're using that as a way to balance the budget. So they're balancing the state budget on the backs of teachers, policemen, firemen, other state workers. The Florida Education Association challenged this law and says the state could have used different ways to raise money. Spokesman Mark Pudlow says that there are multiple ways that the state sales tax loophole could be closed. There's plenty of things they could do. They could close the sales tax loophole. That would raise money. They can aggressively collect sales tax on Internet sales, which is a law they're not collecting right now. And they can repeal some of the tax giveaways for investors and corporations that have been touted as ways to create jobs, but they haven't been creating jobs in the state of Florida. Even though the state Supreme Court's decision is final, the association will work toward changing the the legislation in the next year's election. Pudlow says legally nothing can be done, but in 2014, many seats in the state government will be up for re-election. What we're going to work to do is uh, look towards the elections next year in 2014 when we will elect uh, everybody in the Florida House and a a good percentage of people in the Florida Senate and all the cabinet members, including governor, are up for re-election and we'll be working hard to to let people know that that most of those folk don't care about middle-class working families. Pudlow also says the Florida government is making the choice to use middle-class families as a method to balance the budget and only cares about corporate tax breaks. The association hopes to get new lawmakers and a governor that care about working families into office next year. Florida's clerks of courts are tired of budget cuts that could prevent them from being able to pay employees and are asking lawmakers to help them come up with an effective solution. Florida's 89.1, Sabrina Alvarez reports. Florida's clerk of courts say that years of budget cuts have to stop. Clerks are asking state lawmakers to help them come up with a predictable and stable source of funding so they don't have to face last year's massive budget cuts. 
According to clerks, last year, lawmakers cut their budget by 7 percent, making them short by nearly $30 million and eventually having to ask for a tide-over payment. But Marion County Clerk David Elsperman says they have also presented another issue to lawmakers where they are asking to get exempt from additional fees. The other issue that's before the clerks is that uh, right now, though the clerk collects all the revenue, distributes it amongst the, all the pots of money that it gets divided into, uh, for instance, like a traffic ticket is divided into 20, 20 some odd different buckets. Um, we distribute all that money and send the money up to the state of Florida. And our, in our trust fund that where our money's held, the state of Florida charges us 8% uh, expense fee for just housing the money. That's another $30 million or so that we're trying to be exempt by statute or by law that we don't have to pay that fee when, in fact, we already do all the work and distribute the money for Department of Revenue. Elsperman says Florida's clerks have seen budget cuts since 2009, and they're not sure if they can make payroll. He also says clerks, including him, have already sent their budgets and are waiting on a decision from the legislature. Each clerk has submitted their budget to the corporation uh, that oversees our budget process. The CCOC then has submitted our budgets totally by our state budget to the legislature this week, and um, it goes through the process of budget hearings. Changing from the old trust fund method to the budget process has helped the court bring money in, says Elsperman, but he also says there is still enough money out there if they distribute it wisely. The court years ago um, went to the trust fund method. And that's what was changed for the court last year. They got out of that uh, model because they realized that the roller coaster that we as clerks ride on, they did not have a guaranteed source of revenue. And now that they're out of that process and back into the budget process, I think our relationship with the court is, is sound. I mean, it's... Um, there's enough money, in my opinion, if you look at the dollars of what's collected statewide, there's enough money to fund the clerks and the courts appropriately if some of the pot of the money that we collect is not distributed to GR. Elsperman says legislators have been cooperative in this process, and he says it's up to lawmakers to find a solution. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Sabrina Alvarez in Gainesville. The League of Women Voters has reacted to Governor Rick Scott's election reform recommendation, praising him on the call to increase early voting. Governor Scott on Thursday called for more early voting days, saying they were needed to alleviate the long lines and delays in counting ballots that were a problem in last November's election. President of the Florida League of Women Voters, Deidre McNabb, says Governor Scott has made a good call. We recommended uh, early voting from 9 uh, to 14 days. We thought it was critical to have two weekends and restore the Sunday before election, which is the single highest volume of for minority voters in terms of early voting turnout. While Scott has proposed a shorter ballot, more early voting sites and the option to hold early voting on the Sunday before the election, McNabb says those aren't even the best parts of his proposal. 
allow voters to update their address at the poll, no more chewing gum with this provisional ballot, which really gums up the polls. It takes a much longer time than a regular ballot, and citizens in Florida have been able to do to change their address at the poll for 40 years until this most recent change. McNabb says his proposal positively affects election supervisors as well. We think it is critical to give supervisors the ability to select their own early voting sites. This is something they have also asked the legislature for. The League of Women Voters hosted a conference call in which University of Florida professor Dan Smith spoke about his findings comparing last year's election results to those of previous elections. The shortened days of early voting had a major effect on those individuals who historically have been using early voting. That is racial minorities, primarily African-American. Smith says certain groups were disproportionately affected by last year's election shortcomings. We saw those long lines uh, not only during the early voting period, uh, but also on Election Day, and they were disproportionately uh, filled with racial and ethnic minorities. Smith says voter turnout on both Election Day and during early voting decreased by several percentage points in 2012 as compared to 2008, although he mentions that of the vo- those voters who were African American were adversely affected by the voting policies. Forty-six percent of African Americans who voted voted during that shortened, truncated, compressed eight-day period. As a result, they were the ones who bore disproportionately the brunt of the long lines that we all witnessed uh, in many parts of the state. Smith says one area of voting that was increased is absentee ballots. Close to a million of these ballots were cast. However, he notes that absentee ballots were rejected at a higher rate for African Americans and Hispanics than for whites. Precedent for how utility companies approach the Florida Public Service Commission for utility rate increases is starting to change. In December, the PSC unanimously approved a rate settlement agreement for Florida Power & Light without the approval of the lawyer appointed by the state of Florida to represent consumers, the first time in the organization's history. The move has left Thomas Saperito, an intervener in the case and former Florida Power & Light employee, scratching his head. He filed a motion for the PSC to reconsider their order approving FPL's rate increase on Monday. I spoke with Saperito about the history of the proceedings and why this rate case is unlike any he's ever seen. Seek authorization from the Public Service Commission to raise the electric rate. And that they have every lawful right to do that. And once they did that, they started a a legal proceeding where um, individuals and any other entity can intervene to argue against any rate increase. And the citizens of Florida are represented by the Office of Public Counsel. That's an, or, that's an entity created by the Florida legislature to represent all citizens of Florida. And notwithstanding that office's representation, individuals such as myself can also intervene, separate and apart from the Office of Public Counsel. In this particular case, there were approximately a, a dozen Uh, entities that intervene at the beginning of the uh, case. The case entailed um, numerous months of discovery where depositions were taken, interrogatories were prepared and answered, and documents were requested and produced. Uh, In addition to that, there is pre-filed testimony that goes into the record uh, um, with respect to every party's position and rebuttal testimony, etc. At the end of that discovery period, a a two-week technical hearing was held where witnesses further testified and and the opposing parties had a chance to cross-examine and and produce their own witnesses and evidence. 
at the end of that technical hearing that the commission by law is supposed to make a decision whether to uh, <coughs> whether to grant any rate increase or to or to actually um, grant no rate increase or to decrease the rate. The Office of Public Counsel and uh, numerous interveners took the position that they should actually decrease rates by approximately $253 million that, because the rates were too high as they are, had been set. At the onset, and just prior to the technical hearing taking place, Florida Power and Light produced um, a proposed settlement agreement, which they had reached secretly with three of the um, dozen intervener parties. The three parties they had reached a secret settlement with happened to be industrial power users. Those are, those are um, high uh, consumption uh, industry, uh, just like the hospital association and, and, and uh, uh, organizations like that who use a high demand amount of power. And the, the terms of that proposed settlement agreement decreased their particular electric rates, but shifted costs over to residential uh, uh, type of customers like myself, and and I wasn't get I wasn't invited to negotiate that settlement. Neither was the any representative of the office of public counsel or, or the other intervener parties that weren't part of that settlement agreement. So the settlement agreement on its face was illegal. But nonetheless, after the technical hearing uh, ended, and uh, and the, the commission took up uh, whether or not they were going to approve or even consider this proposed settlement agreement. So what the commission decided to do was they were going to delay a decision on the, on the rate case, which had just been argued over approximately a nine-month period where discovery took place and there were the technical hearings. And they said, we're going to do, we're going to allow the parties um, to engage in oral argument whether we should approve or, 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 or not even consider the settlement agreement. The Florida Power and Light, and the, and the three signatories to that um, illegal settlement document proposed that they should that they should accept the settlement agreement, and everyone else, including the Office of Public Counsel, argued that they shouldn't accept it. That they, it was an illegal document. That none of the other parties that were even invited to negotiate the terms of that settlement agreement, and more specifically, since the Office of Public Counsel was not a signatory to it, the document itself is not in the public interest because the Office of Public Counsel represents the public interest. Nonetheless, the Commission took it upon themselves to order further hearing. So a subsequent hearing took place. Again, the parties engaged in discovery. Documents were produced, questions were answered under oath, and, and there was a, another hearing that took place. And, and after that hearing concluded, the parties once again filed post-hearing briefs, and the Commission held a, a special session on December 13th, 2012, in Tallahassee, and they had publicly um, discussed the terms and conditions of that proposed settlement agreement. And during the context of that um, discussion, the chairman you know, stopped the discussion. He says, well, everybody can see where, where our um, positions are in the settlement and, and, and the fact that the document could float but, you know, we have some reservations in some areas. So what we're going to do, we're going to take an hour break, and we're going to give the parties in this proceeding opportunity, maybe they'll have a meeting of minds or words to that effect, and they can give their any suggestions to our executive director who will convey them to us after this hour is over. 
and then we're going to make a decision. So I took an hour lunch break, and FPL and their signatories went one way, and everybody else went another way. There was no meeting of the minds. There was no meeting. In fact, I was in the cafeteria, and I could see the FPL attorneys and their, and their president, Eric Schlesey, and they saw me. They never approached me to bring me into any part of this settlement. So after the meeting was over, or rather the lunch period was over, everybody went back into this room up there. And off the public council prepared a statement to the effect that, you know, they are not going to sign this document. They'll never sign the document. It was, in fact, illegal. And the whole process was illegal. And all the non-signatories, including myself, agreed with that and adopted that position. And that was given to the commission. And then FPNL, and FPL proposed several changes to the settlement document to the commission. And if you can believe it or not, senior counsel for staff further suggested more modifications and changes to the proposed settlement. And then unbelievably, in violation of the sunshine law to this state, the commission allowed Florida Pine Light representatives and the commission staff, and they met secretly. <laughs> by themselves in a secret room, and they modified terms and conditions of that illegal settlement agreement. And they came back with a new settlement agreement, which, which the commission voted on and adopted unanimously. That was intervener in the Florida Power and Light rate increase case, Thomas Saperito. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm El Newbold. And I'm Chip Scambus. For many people, Martin Luther King Day means a day off from school and work. But as Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Drew Bryan reports, many people are preparing for events that celebrate Martin Luther King's impactful life. I am happy to join with you today. These famous words belong to a man that many organizations like the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission of Florida and various UF associations are preparing to celebrate this weekend. Martin Luther King Day is observed the third Monday in January, and this August will mark the 50th year since Dr. King made his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. So what does Martin Luther King Day mean to people today? Going around the University of Florida campus, a few students had something to say. It means, I guess, equality. It means um, freedom. It means, I guess, that's all. To me, it's camping and long breaks, a long weekend. It's a really honorable day for a person who is extremely admirable. Well, for me, it means standing up for what you believe in and just continuing to think about the future of others. To the president of the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission, Rodney Long, Martin Luther King Day is much more than just a day of celebration and remembrance. His commission has put together events all this week for the Gainesville and Alachua County area. The Martin Luther King Jr. Commission celebration is more than a day to me. It's uh, my organization, the Martin Luther King Jr. Commission of Florida, we plan a week of activities in honor of commemorating the birth and celebrating the life of Dr. King. I think it's important that we continue to honor a man who paid the ultimate sacrifice for this community to bring to light those things that are important to all of us, all of us in this country. Activities will continue through the 22nd, and the public is invited to attend all the activities this organization will put on. 
Tonight at 7, the Martin Luther King Center will hold the fourth annual Youth Talent Extravaganza for elementary, middle, and high school students. On Saturday, the commission will sponsor the Road to Zero Violence, Drug Abuse, and AIDS Awareness Block Party for the Youth at 10 a.m. at the MLK Center. And on Monday, the annual commemorative march will begin at 1 p.m. at the Martin Luther King Memorial Gardens. Celebrations aside, Long urges everyone to go back and look at the I Have a Dream speech to reflect on what Dr. King fought for and see how, 50 years later, it has made an impact on society today. I think that for those who have not had an opportunity to read or listen to the Martin Luther King speech of 50 years ago, I would encourage them to Google it, go online, read it, or listen to it, because the words that Dr. King spoke 50 years ago are going to ring hollow today, 50 years hence, if we don't go back and take heed to the things that he talked about, the vision that he espoused, not just the only vision that one day he would, hopefully he would live in a country where his kids will not be judged by the color of the skin, but by the context of the character. I mean, in those things that the promisor know that we were all to fall heir of the promise, and we need to look and see whether or not America has gone bankrupt and that they have actually fallen on the promissory note. So those are the things that I think that we need. We live in today, 50 years hence of his speech. We need to go and see whether or not the ideals that Dr. King believed in expiles are really coming to fruition. The Martin Luther King Jr. Commission will conclude their events on Tuesday with the Remembering Coretta Observance Program held at the Macedonia Baptist Church at 6 p.m. Besides having a long weekend, many like Long hope the importance of this national holiday will ring true for years and years to come. He brought to light that the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence was written for all of us. And he did more for, I think, all of America by bringing to light those things that were injustice for people of color and poor people. On the University of Florida campus, events will start on Monday at 8 a.m. at the Plaza of the Americas and run through the 30th. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Drew Bryan. To remind America of the fierce urgency of now, this is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. They're coughing, they're sneezing. It's flu season again. And for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Jane Shedd tells us how to to avoid getting sick this year. Free flu shots were handed out to students and faculty at the University of Florida Student Health Care Center from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. today. In the beginning of December, the Center of Disease Control warned the public that the flu season is coming earlier and will be heavier than in seasons past. Here in Gainesville, there have already been 100 cases of flu-like illnesses reported and more than 30 positive cases at the Student Health Care Center alone. Student Dara Chen and many others are getting the shots so that the flu does not interfere with their studies. I don't want to get sick, especially with 18 credits and a bunch of other stuff going on. Others, such as Professor Tim Davis, are getting the shot not only to protect themselves, but also to protect the health of those around them. I'm also traveling up north to see see my mom and to see an older cousin of mine he's 80 years old and so I'm thinking you know I should protect myself to protect them. Student Health Care Center marketing coordinator Catherine Seaman says the flu shot has been provided for over 50 years and has been studied by both the Center of Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration so no one should be worried about what's inside the vaccination. 
She says that it's not too late to get the shot, but it takes about two weeks for your body to build antibodies after getting the shot. So there is reason to get it sooner than later. If you wait until the thick of flu season and you're, you know, around people that are sick, it's very possible you can contract that virus before the flu shot can take effect. So that's why we're pushing people to get their shot if they haven't already. If you do end up contracting the flu, avoid work to prevent others from getting the virus and also get plenty of rest and drink lots of water. This year, Alachua County has had a milder flu season than the rest of Florida, but a slow season does not mean you should skip getting the vaccination this year. It's one of those things where um, you have to change the oil in your car every 3,000 miles. You should get a flu shot every fall. Along with getting the shot, to prevent yourself from getting the flu, wash your hands and take flu antiviral drugs prescribed by your doctor. You're listening to Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM. I'm Jane Schwett in Gainesville. Marion County is now set to on the arrival of a new science and technology park in the northern part of the county. Marion County commissioners voted on Tuesday and unanimously approved an agreement for the park. Scott Siemens, who is the project director, describes the park as a multifunctional center that will bring new opportunities to the county. It's to be a live-work-play campus that will bring... Uh, creative class, science and technology-related jobs, higher-paying jobs, to Central Florida. Siemens says that even through the development, they are ready and willing to fast-track the process for any potential client that comes along. That means we could go through a, uh, a uh, permitting process, uh, have it quickly reviewed and be doing a uh, design of actual buildings simultaneously and cut the whole process down to what could be, you know, as little as four months, uh, uh, you know, and, and literally at uh, time of the site permit approval be doing vertical uh, construction. Siemens adds that they have a joinder with their lender who has agreed for the approvals and the agreement between the municipality to run with the property. If there was a failure of the project, uh, someone couldn't come along and pick it up and, and without going through another approval process, just arbitrarily say, we, we, don't, we didn't sign that developer's agreement, uh, we don't have to adhere to it. In many municipalities, when a land use change is approved, there are quite often conditions of approval. And one methodology, other than just relying on codes and ordinances and, and structure that's in place uh, through the government, is to actually create an agreement between the developer and the government. And that's what a, uh, uh, the developer's agreement would entail. It, it gives us our... Uh, the the rights for the project, uh, the scope, and uh, it uh, pretty much delineates which entity is doing what and responsible for what. Siemens says that they own about 450 acres for this project and have delegated the development of different pieces of the land. We are um, developing uh, the first 150-acre first phase um, we have received approval for uh, 200 hotel rooms, 100,000 square foot of neighborhood retail, um, um, nearly a million square foot of commerce, and uh, approximately 258 multifamily residences. Siemens adds that they are providing nearly 100 acres for nearly a million square feet of commerce. 
have the ability to write along I-75 at an exchange of 318. There's a there's an actual interchange there. We had we now have the uh, right and been approved to uh, be able to provide sites for. Uh, companies that want to come to Central Florida. Although the agreement has been met with approval, Siemens says that the project isn't without challenges. The, the economy is the biggest roadblock, uh, and we're not special. Everybody uh, has the same issue. And uh, the Marion County Board of County Commissioners has pretty much removed any, uh, and staff have removed any roadblocks uh, which have been in our way over the years uh, in order to try to create uh, an atmosphere for nearly 3,000 jobs. Siemens says the site is exposed to nearly a mile of frontage on I-75 and says that the park should be easily accessible from many parts of Gainesville and Ocala. In our ongoing series on the Gainesville food scene, we focus today on an unusual career path for one local chef, Andy Fass, chef and owner of the downtown Gainesville Italian restaurant, Amelia's. When Fass finished his undergraduate years at the University of Florida in 1998, he thought he wanted to be in entertainment law. But after his first year of law school, he was pretty sure he didn't want to practice law at all. WUFT multimedia reporter Sarah Drum takes us through Fass's path trading torts for tarts. Andy Fast has been the head chef and owner of Amelia's restaurant for five years now. A reality that might have surprised a younger Andy as he started his first year at the Levin College of Law in 1999 with dreams of practicing entertainment law. Fast who also went to the University of Florida for his undergraduate years, spent three years learning the language of lawsuits and contracts and court proceedings. But after his first year of law school, he was pretty sure he didn't actually want to practice law. He stuck with it because he saw the value of the degree. Now, he spends his days chopping and slicing and dicing, simmering and sautéing and frying at Amelia's restaurant, an Italian diner tucked behind the Hippodrome Theater downtown. Sort of reapproached my career, and then uh, I, I took some time off and, and went to work for Carnival Cruise Lines as a musician. Played saxophone on one of their cruise ships for uh, for a couple months, which was an interesting experience, and that that sort of rejuvenated my interest in in food, and you know, eating at the different ports that we would go to and hanging out with, with the kitchen staff. Fast said he always had an interest in cooking because his uncle was a chef and his mom was a great cook. But visiting the New England Culinary Institute in Vermont at his sister's suggestion was what motivated him to consider culinary arts as a career option. When I took a tour and I was enrolled, I think like four or five months later, it was just, I, I fell in love with the school. It was, um, it was what I needed. You know, to to, um, to become a chef. After Fast graduated from the Culinary Institute, he worked at restaurants in New Orleans and Asheville, North Carolina, before moving back to Gainesville with a new plan to own a restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
He considered starting a new restaurant in the space where Boca Fiesta now is, but Amelia's, then owned by Ralph Corsa, really captured his interest. It, well, it was sort of half the plan. Um, when I when I came back to Gainesville, um, well, after culinary school and even in culinary school, most of my working experiences had been in, in Italian, and uh, I love Italian food. Not Italian by birth, but um, I, I understand it. I feel I we we do it well. You know, that's when I was like, well, you know, this is this is a viable career option, and you know, I I, I love this. I love cooking, matched with my my other background of of law and and you know analytical thinking. Okay, it's, it's a viable business too. With the restaurant's history, customer base, and fresh Italian food, he felt it was the place to put his culinary and business skills to the test. Fass removed a couple of dishes from the menu when he took over and added some of his own specials, such as lobster ravioli and duck. While special entrees are made based on locally available products, there are also staple products that simmer in large pots for hours in the kitchen like their house-made tomato sauce and chicken stock. That's our chicken stock. Take uh, chicken, uh, chicken fat and trimmings and some um, carrots, onions, celery, and uh, the skins of the onions, everything for good, good flavor and color. And uh, we cook it down with, uh, with the chicken parts. And uh, After five years as head chef, he feels settled into the restaurant and confident about moving forward. It's been great. I mean, uh, nobody told me about the uh, economic turmoil that would happen about, you know, six months to a year and then the following three years after I bought the business. So that was sort of a little bit of a shock, um, you know, but we, we made it through that and things are definitely getting better. Although it was an unusual career choice for a law student, Fast credits his law training for helping him to keep things running smoothly. I mean, it's about seeing both sides of an issue and being able to argue both sides of an issue and, and finding, finding holes and problems with issues. And that, that translates exactly to running a restaurant. I mean, your credit card machine goes down in the middle of service what are you going to do? You know, improvising in the kitchen is, is key. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I'm Sarah Drum. For photos of FAS and more in our Gainesville food series, log on to WUFT.org. We're now joined in the studio by AM850's Mark Whiteman to give us a look at sports for this weekend. It's looking like a busy weekend in the sports world, isn't it, Mark? Chip, you're absolutely right, man. First off, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so obviously there are two gigantic sports scandals that the world is sort of talking about right now, those being uh, Lance Armstrong's admission to doping for all seven of his Tour de France titles. The second part of his exclusive interview with Oprah will be on the Oprah Winfrey Network tonight. Uh, so we'll be talking a little bit about that. And as well, Manti Teo, that's 
probably been one of the weirdest sports stories to ever crop up, maybe possibly ever. So uh, we'll be delving into that as well. But when you talk Gator sports, it's a huge week in the headship. You're absolutely right. Uh, both the men's and women's basketball teams are in action. The men hosting Missouri tomorrow. Missouri probably the uh, the best SEC team the Gators will face all year. And the women taking on a tough and physical South Carolina team um, on Sunday. But that's not all. The men and women's swimming and diving team will uh, – play FAU this weekend, excuse me, uh, as well. Tennis, the men's tennis team will face off against Miami, while the women's tennis team is in a three-day, the Freeman Memorial Tournament that got underway today. As well, the gymnastics team will be hosting Missouri tonight for a competition. So, like you said, a very, very busy weekend in Gator sports, but also a lot of really just compelling national stories. Um, So I will be joined tonight on the cheap seats on ESPN 850-900 by Jason Spain, Bobby Shepsky, and Riva Labby, and we will be getting started at 6 p.m. So uh, for all your sports talk coming up later on, please join us, ESPN 850-900. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm El Newbold. And I'm Chip Scambus. Stay tuned for a news update from NPR and the WUFTFM news team. Florida's 89.1, WUFT-FM Gainesville, and WJUF-FM 90.1 Inverness, one of America's leading public media outlets. WUFT.org.